In the words of Fat Freddy's Drop, keep on reaching through. And this is the Fat Man Chronicles. today, but I do have a very special guest, our good friend Karen Clark. How are you, Karen? I am good. good we can get into that a little bit more. I'm good. I'm a little tired, but I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we really appreciate you joining us. And as I've alluded to on previous uh, episodes and shows, you recently did uh, a 100-mile race, which is not the first time you've done it, but you were going for a new personal best in terms of time. And we already spoiled that part where, where you did. So, uh, but I wanted to talk about, you know, kind of refresh everybody's memory on a little bit of who you are and then talk about the, the race and, and kind of more the mental aspect of it. Cause I just find it fascinating and, We've had a lot of good talks, and I think others would get some good stuff out of it. Sound good? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it does sound good. Do you want to ask me questions, yeah. or do you want me just to launch into something? How do you want to? Yeah, kind do of that? both. So let's start yeah. out. Just if we could, just kind of tell people a little bit about you and kind of your, at least your running history a little bit, and then yeah. uh, then we'll get into the into the specifics on the race. Yeah. Um, so. I mean, I was never a sporty kid, but I always kind of had this idea that I would like running. Um, and I ran a marathon many, many years ago back in New Zealand. So I think it was around, gonna say the late 80s. Um, it was definitely before Oprah Winfrey ran a marathon. So this was back <laughs> when, you know what I mean? That yeah. was when it kind of changed and it became a more common thing for people to do. Um, and so... As soon as I started running, I knew I wanted to run a marathon. I thought marathons were the longest distance people ran. I mean, it right. never occurred to me for many, many years that people ever went any further than that. Um, so I ran that, and I really kind of thought it was a one-and-done deal. You know, I just ran for fitness. I would do three-mile runs during the week. I didn't really do much more than that. Um, we came over here in 2000. And I guess that's when I started to see the races really close to me that I had only seen in magazines before, right? Like I lived halfway around the world. There were only, when I ran my marathon, I only had the choice of two. So, you know, it wasn't a huge thing um, to do in New Zealand. So I came over here and, and I saw the Disney World marathons and I saw all these things and it just sparked my interest to do more. Um, so I ran another couple of marathons, but I didn't really get into it that much, Pete. It was more just a fitness thing, you know, and something I just did for fun. The ultra running thing, I guess, happened just – I did other adventure sports too, and we can go into that, you know, as much as you want. But I've done other big things, I guess, things that have required a lot of training and a lot of thought, you know, and a lot of planning. So the ultra running is not the only thing I've done that's taken that much 
um, to actually complete. So the way I got into this was purely by chance. So a friend of mine that I was working with mentioned to me that there was a long hike event that you could do in one day. And it was on a trail called the Rachel Carson Trail, which was about half an hour from where we lived. I had We had hiked a lot, Lloyd and myself, when we were younger, but we'd never really gone more than, you know, 10 miles or so maybe in a day. And my friend told me about this hike, which at the time was a 34-mile hike along this Rachel Carson Trail from one end to the other in a day. And they had training hikes on the weekends and you could build up to it. And I just thought it would be a fun way to meet some new people and go out and do some new things. So we did that and we completed it. And my husband did it with me, Lloyd, and we got to the end. We got home. We were absolutely exhausted. We couldn't believe we did it, first of all, that you actually could do 34 miles in one day. And then it just started to occur to me that, man, that took so long. Like if I could have just run some of that, (laughs) I could have gotten that over with much faster. And so I just started jogging and then I found out about 50 mile races. And as soon as I started looking at that, I saw pretty quickly that there was such a thing as a hundred mile ultramarathon. So timing-wise, when was this kind of like timing-wise in that? This was probably around, I'm going to say 2014, 2015. I think we did that first hike in 2014. And then in 2015, I found out about 50 mile races. And I thought if I can do that Rachel Carson hike, which at that time had grown a bit, they keep expanding the trail. If I could do 34 miles and nine hours, I would try this 50 mile race that I had seen the same year. So I thought, you know, it's not that much further. I think it had a 13 hour cutoff. I did the math. I thought, you know, if I do that in nine, I'll try this. And that was the next year. That was 2015. So that year I did the Rachel Carson race in just over nine hours. And then I, my first 50 mile race was the Baker Challenge run by the same race director close to where we live. And I had a 13-hour cutoff, and I don't. I think I did it in like 11 and a half or 12 hours. I don't remember. And I already had in my head, I didn't tell Lloyd, but I already had in my head, if I do this around 12 hours, I'm going to get a coach and I'm going to train for a 100-mile race. And so that's where it started, and here I am, <laughs> 2022, <laughs> still doing it, which is the longest I've ever done one sport or one anything of any kind. Yeah, yeah. so what were some of those other endeavors that, that you were into? Yeah, so we always hiked a lot. Lloyd was more into winter sports than I ever was, but once I got introduced to that, he would go hiking in the snow. We would There are some cool volcanoes you can climb up in New Zealand that have snow. We did a little bit of that. But I'm kind of an all-or-nothing person in a lot of ways, I guess. So as soon as I saw that, I... You know, these were the times when you you could start to just Google things and find stuff. And I found these awesome climbs up Mount Rainier. Mm. So we did. Oh, actually, we went up Mount Washington first. That's what it was because it was, you know, pretty close to where we live. So we decided we would try a trip up Mount Washington in the winter, which was a huge adventure. Yeah, that is an amazing place. I've never seen weather like that. Well, I actually have, but not not down that low um, since we did that. Yeah, so, yeah, so for we people did that, that don't know, that's, that's actually the, it's the windiest place in America. 
mm-hmm. um, the top of Mount Washington, and it's n- not all that high. I don't know how high it is, but it isn't. It definitely is not that high. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm going to look that up while you continue yeah. to explain. Yeah. And the I'm weather up here is, the weather's consistently bad. It's not like you have to pick a good time to get bad weather. Right? Like you right. can pretty much go up there most of the time and it's going to be pretty bad. And we did that and Lloyd was pretty happy with that. He was like, that was great. Okay, on to the next thing. Meanwhile, I'm looking up Mount Rainier and I'm thinking about what else we could do. (laughs) So I learned about this cool climb up the Liberty Ridge side of Mount Rainier, which really is um, a lot of ice climbing. And they required that you do some ice climbing before that. So I learned how to ice climb and then I went up that part of Liberty Ridge on Mount Rainier. And you just start to meet people in the climbing world. So I didn't really know what I thought the ultimate goal would be. I guess I always wanted to climb something like Denali because I just felt like that was huge. And so I went to Aconcagua first. That's about 22,000 feet, I think, at the peak. And I think Denali's similar. Denali might be just a little bit higher than that. Um, so I climbed those. I um, mean, I did a bit of rock climbing in between, mostly just for confidence and, you know, wearing harnesses and ropes and climbing with a group. So Yeah. Yeah. The problem with all of those sports, though, and what struck me about them is they're really expensive yes. and you have to commit big blocks of time, right? Like you can't, when we went to Aconcagua, that's like three weeks. And you just can't always take that amount of time out of everyday life. So I guess I was looking for something that wasn't so expensive, wasn't so time consuming and something I could do more often. You know, I didn't want it to be something I plan for and do once every two years. Right. So I looked up Mount Washington, 6,288 feet, right? Versus peaks that are over 20,000 and, you know, on this show, I, I've talked a lot about, and I'll, in my personal life, I talk a lot about Bill Burke, who um, has climbed the, you know, the, the seven summits plus one. He's He's got a website called Eight Summits, and he's the oldest American, maybe the oldest in the world, I think, to summit Everest from both sides. So wow. the reason I kind of started getting interested in understanding climbing, I don't really have like I'd love to do a 14 or something someday, right? Like that I can walk up, but I'm not real interested at least at this point in my life in other stuff. Um, yeah. But it's such an interesting sport and following Bill's adventures, you know, it's just been amazing. I'm, I'm blown away by how much knowledge you have to capture before you can climb a mountain versus running, right? Like as a comparison where, if you want, just throw on any decently comfortable shoe, a pair of shorts and a shirt, and you can pretty much go. And we Absolutely. already know naturally how to do it. Um, so it it's one of those really kind of different sports that uh, or activities. I mean, I, I think it's absolutely should be categorized as a sport um, that people go out and do that I'm just amazed by. So, I mean, it's, it can go in so many different directions, you know, and I think people fall in love with different aspects of it. For some people, it's bigger and higher. For some people, it's more challenging and technical. You know, it just, it really depends what part of it you, that resonates with you the most. Yeah. Um, What resonated with you about it? Definitely the technical parts. The technical climbing is what I really loved. So, 
the idea of I would never say that the idea of Mount Everest never popped in my head. It certainly popped in my head from time. I can't not, you know, when you're in that world and people are doing things like that. But the reality of a mountain like that is not appealing to me at all. Um, just the sheer crowds, the just everything about that is not. It's, it's a little bit like you were talking about Chicago as a big marathon. I know that might seem like an odd comparison, but it's actually very similar in a lot of ways. Um, and that isn't what appeals to me. Yeah, and it, for and Everest, it's different, right? Because it makes it way more dangerous when there's that many people on the mountain, those lines yeah. to get to a summit. And it getting to the summit's usually not the, the tough or even to the point of deadly part of a climb. It's, it's coming down. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like getting to the summit's only part of part of the story um it's all about timing you know and you realize when you go to these big mountains it's all about the weather and timing and whether you have the knowledge and you're with the people that can figure out how to navigate those things and like you say get up there with enough time to get back down and it's there's a real community in climbing just like there is and with ultra running and you know these other sports that we do and you know, you see some pretty horrific things up there. And ultimately, that's probably what drove me away from that sport in many ways, when you see just the reality of it. Um, even when I climbed Mount Rainier, you know, there, it, it, it's just there are some tragedies up there that you never think you would personally have to see. Right. And you can either divorce yourself from that and continue with the sport, or you can't. Um, And it was a part of it that I found really difficult. I found it really difficult to concentrate on my own climb when these things are unfolding um, around you. So, and I just had some bad luck. You know, the years that I went to these places, there were just tragedies that they hadn't seen in past years. And, you know, that's just kind of how it goes. So I'm glad I did it. I learned a lot. Um, And I think it made me want to find other adventures. Right. And I think that's probably my big takeaway from that. Yeah. What What else did you take away from climbing like that you've been able to translate into running into the ultra world? Yeah, I think probably I'm really fascinated with the self-talk that we have and then the reality of what's physically possible. <laughs> yeah. You know, the the junction of those two things. And I've had a lot of experiences where I've really been 100% sure I'm at the edge of my physical ability and I'm done. And something's happened that has given you no choice but to continue. And it's after the fact that you realize that you got over whatever that mental thought was. And that there was just so much more underneath that. And it doesn't stop the thinking from happening to this day, but I can't deny the fact that I know better. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. About, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. How about the preparation for climbing? Does that translate into the ultra? I guess it does. I hadn't actually thought about that, but I think it does. I think what intrigues me about all of these sports is the level of planning that's required. Like if you didn't have to plan it, if it wasn't an expedition, if it didn't require training and build up. I don't know that I would want to do these things. You know, it's that puzzle that fascinates me as much as just the actual event. You know, if you could just go climb Mount Everest without anything, why would you? You know, what what would be the point? And the same with a 100-mile race or anything else. You know, if there's not some challenge that 
really takes some effort, I don't know if it would be something I would do. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. All right. So let's let's forward on to to now and where you and I and, and Rob talk quite a bit about kind of our upcoming races and two of us are done and Rob's the only sucker that still has something left. Um, we will be there to support him, but um, you know, that's a different, different animal. Uh, and leading up to that, I mean, we all face challenges, right? Like in our training cycles, I, I podcasted about all mine. Um, uh, you had some, but I, I think it's almost naive to think you won't, right? I, I mean, mm-hmm. if anybody says I had no problems ever in my training cycle, I did every run, everyone felt good. I, I mean, they're either the luckiest person on earth or they're just lying. I, I It's one of the two because it's going to happen. So when you're facing those adversities during that training part, right, that lead up, the preparation like, how do you keep going? Like, wh- why not just stop, right? You have nothing left to prove to yourself pretty much, right? Like, so why keep going? It's a good question. And I was actually thinking about this. People have been asking me since the weekend, oh, what's next? You know, what's next? What are you going to do now? And I didn't think I would ever do another 100 mile race. But I thought at the beginning of this year, when I set out the training plan, I I. I thought that whether or not I was motivated enough to do it, I would find out based on whether or not I did all the training and whether or not I was motivated to go out there regardless of how it felt or regardless of what the weather was like. If I wanted to do the race enough, that would motivate me to go and do those races because I'm not confident enough to think that I've got enough of a base just to go run these things. I don't have that kind of self-confidence. So if I don't think that I put the work and the effort in, there's no way I could just toe the line with any sense that it was going to go well. So the two are so linked for me that it was every time, Pete, something would happen or the weather would be crappy or something wouldn't go well, it was partly, well, do you want to run the race or don't you? You know, and if you do, it's going to feel worse than this at some point. So if you can't do this training run, how are you going to get through, you know, at 2 a.m. in the morning? So that kind of self-talk of you think this is hard. <laughs> you know, if you can't do this, you can't do that. Um, yeah. And, you know, the other thing, I think, when we talk about it not always being easy, I think I've just lost any expectation that it will be easy. So I don't start my runs thinking that it, it will be easy or it'll be hard. I just do the run and it turns out easy or it turns out hard. And I don't really question that. So it doesn't phase me when they don't go well yeah. because I don't expect them all to go well. So if you don't have something on your calendar as a next race, are you still running? Are you still motivated by the process? It's a good question because it's been a long time since I've had nothing on my calendar. You know, it's been a long time. Um, So I actually don't know the answer to that. I don't know what would happen over winter if I don't have some idea in my head that there's a purpose to it. I really don't know. I think I would still do short runs. I find it's a really good stress reliever for me. We have a gym in the building I work in. 
So I think I would probably still go down and run on the treadmill to get a half an hour break, you know, for those reasons. But I don't know. I don't know if I would go outside on the weekends when I could stay inside and watch football. I, I don't know. Yeah. What do you think? Like, what does it look like for you? Well, I, it, my, if you look at my past, then you're going to say you're going to be super inconsistent, right? I do believe now, though, I've turned a corner. Like, it's been an effort not to run the last couple of days. I am going to run tomorrow. Um, so we're recording Thursday night. I am running with somebody on Friday with Oscar um, at Waterfall Glen. So I want to, I think I did make that mental switch to where the process itself is enjoyable. But I will say like that marathon training in particular for me is difficult in mm-hmm. that it's not so much the number of miles. It's that you, if you want to do the race and you want to do it well, you can't say, well, I won't do my 20 this week. I'll do it some other yeah. time, right? Like you, yeah. you can't do that. And when it's 90 degrees and that's and you're training for a fall race and that's when you have to do your 20, that's when you have to do the 20, right? Mm-hmm. I like the freedom of knowing like right now I could say, well, if I want to do six or eight, then that's what I go do. Yeah. Uh, I am going to retain my coach, um, coach Holly. Ann's I was wondering coach. about that. I was actually going to ask you that. Yeah. Yeah. So Holly Ann's agreed to, I don't know why she's agreed to continue to work with me, but she has. <laughs> um, and that to me is good because I think that'll, you know, she'll be, that nudge, right? That's like, look, I get it, but you told me. So like one of the things that I've always wanted, I've wanted at the drop of a hat, if I decide, for example, there's a half marathon in Naperville this Saturday, right? A couple of days mm-hmm. from now. I want to be in the type of shape where I'm like, you know what? There's still spots left. I want to go run that half marathon and I want to do it yeah. well, maybe not PR well, but well, and, mm-hmm. and feel good after. I want to be in half marathon shape as I call it, right? to be able to just drop and go. I think I can do that. I think I'm well on my way to being able to do that. Yeah. But we're going to find out together, <laughs> you know, if that's what's on, because right, right now I've got helping Rob and then nothing until the end of May. So I've got an entire I, winter to think about it. <laughs> I think I'm actually in a similar position to you because I signed up for the Heine 50K in April just because they open it after the race, like literally the week after the race and it sells out, you know, in no time and it's not that expensive. So I have that. I'm not sure how committed I am to doing it. You know, I have it there. And I do have some ideas of a few things I thought I might want to do next year. So, But unlike you, I have not missed running at all this week. Like I have no desire to run this weekend. I am perfectly happy to catch up on some other things. So you maybe you're a step ahead of me. (laughs) (laughs) This is also the first race I've done without a coach. Um, This is the first year actually I've ever trained for ultra running without a coach, which had its own mental challenges too because I just didn't I I didn't know how much confidence I had in my own plan you know I was kind of like I don't know is this the right is this not right I really don't know so did you like it more or less I mean I know you like your coach a lot so 
I mean, yeah, I didn't, I didn't like it as much. I, I missed him yeah. a lot, um, but I, I just didn't. Ha- Again, it comes back to the confidence thing. I didn't have enough confidence in my own ability. I didn't know if I had a hundred percent recovered from cancer treatment. I wasn't sure. You know, last year was so rough, and I kept feeling like. I made some progress and then it would just backslide again. And I didn't want someone else to be involved in the ups and downs of that. You know, I felt like I didn't want the added accountability of that. I didn't want to feel the pressure of somebody else. I wanted to be able to just take it as it came right. um, a little bit more and just see what happens. So and we kind of miss brushed by that. that you you had cancer and if, you know, you yeah. trained through all of that. And I mean, it's just an amazing, you know, part and I tried to it got pretty it actually started to really become an issue more towards the end of treatment when I think my body had just had enough you know I would go out training Pete and just over the months I would just feel weaker and weaker and weaker in the end it just became a no-brainer it was apparent that I wasn't getting any positive training effect at all and I just had to stop you know, and that's what I ended up doing last year. I think COVID actually helped me because there were no races on my calendar. You know, I didn't feel like I was missing out on anything. Um, yeah, I just really needed a break. So up until then, I think I was really just riding off of the incredible fitness I had going into it, you yeah. know, and I think slowly that just wore down. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I know that you fought a, an aggressive form of, of cancer. So, I mean, it's not like it was, um, there's no easy cancer and, uh, you know, definitely anybody who can fight off that insidious disease, you know, that there's a lot of toughness involved in that. Uh, and I I'm sure may, some of that may, has to translate may, too. <laughs> maybe, but I, I don't know. I can only really speak for myself, but I think you just end up in a situation where you can be tough. And I think maybe it takes some toughness, but there's also really no other option at that point. You know, what really are you going to do? Um, There's an odd acceptance that comes with it that is almost kind of peaceful. It's not a giving up acceptance. It's just an acceptance of reality, and you just end up going through what you go through. Yeah. I think that's what I I had known at the beginning it was going to be over two years of treatment. I mean, I'm just glad I had no idea um, when I started that journey because you can't deal with all of that at once. You know, you just have to deal with it as it unfolds. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's what I meant because there are people who, you know, get into that situation and just go, you know what? I don't, and that, and I'm not saying that that's bad, right? Like if, if you're like, Hey, look, I don't, I don't want to fight this thing. I'm just going to go through the Mm -hmm. motions. That's fine. Like everybody gets to make their choice. I'm just saying that to, to decide though, I'm going to go through the treatments, but the way that you phrased it, it's kind of, to me, the second time, you know, I've been reading a lot on Stoic philosophy and, and, you know, the Stoics, I think are misunderstood a lot in modern times. People think that it's more of a philosophy of, oh, I don't care, but that's on, it's untrue. It's more mm-hmm. of an acceptance. And then you get to decide if something's good or bad, right? If it has utility or doesn't have utility. And when you go into something with that kind of flatness of it, it, it like kind of, it is what it is. So, I have to accept it. I think that there's power in that because you don't waste energy on emotion, right? Yeah. I think it's one of the biggest misconceptions about that, that acceptance is giving up. Yeah. Um, in fact, it, it's, I actually missed out a part of my story before I got into climbing. 
um, I got into Buddhism in a, in a big way. Like I said, I never do anything by halves. And I ended up going up to a place in Barrie, Massachusetts for a year. And literally it was a silent retreat for a year. So I worked there um, instead of actually paying to be there um, and spent a year there. Um, and it just kind of, yeah, and, and unless unless you try the idea of really just letting go, I don't think you can really understand the freedom of that. And this is not something I do with every part of my life all the time that just comes naturally. Absolutely not. Like I'm probably the worst control freak there is. And if we get into my race, you'll see yeah, yeah. just how controlling I actually am. But underneath that, there's this idea of I'll try and control this and then I'll let go of that and it will unfold how it unfolds. Right. So it's not giving up and just saying, well, I'll just show up on the start line and we'll see what happens. You know, it's having a plan, but it's holding it loosely enough that you can let the reality of the day unfold and just react to that as it happens. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, I think that's a good transition into the, into the race. So tell us what the race is and then just, yeah. I mean, I'll ask questions along the way, but start telling yep. that story. Yeah. I mean, the, this sport is a lot of fun, but I've always, I need new things in it, you know, just like anything. So when I started it, I, I was into all of the mountain stuff and the hard stuff and the hilly stuff. My first hundred that I tried was Leadville. Um, and the second one I tried was similarly hilly. So I did all of that kind of hilly stuff. And then I just started getting fascinated by the mind games of running loops and like running flat courses and just the way it messes with your head, like that it just is this whole different challenge that I never, ever would have anticipated. So I had tried another flat course for time um, in the middle of my treatment and I got about halfway through it. And again, my body was just really, I look back at it now, my body just wasn't up for it. But what I learned was it was a less than a one mile loop and you just went round and round this 0.85 mile loop in theory for 24 hours and it was like mind-bending I couldn't believe the stuff that was going on in my head and I'm like this is this is awesome like I've got to do more of this and I really want to figure it out so and I really wanted to do a hundred mile race in under 24 hours it's sort of for those people that don't run ultras it's a little bit like the equivalent of running a 5k in under 30 minutes you know, or a marathon in under four hours. I think it's kind of a similar goal to that, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's doable, but you know it's hard, Yeah. right? So that's the way I viewed the 24-hour mark. I had the sense that I could figure this out and I could do it. It wasn't going to be easy, but it was possible. So the other mistake or the thing I realized when I did that last flat course is unlike trail running with hills, you have to control your own pace because otherwise you can run the whole thing, but I'm not fit enough to run the whole thing for a hundred miles. So if I do that, I'm just going to crash and burn, you know, at some point. So I knew I needed a strategy to control pace. And one of the things I've said to Rob, as we've talked about his race, when you do the math of a hundred mile race, it either looks incredibly easy because you just do the math and you're like, oh, I just have to do 15 minute miles. You know, that's not hard. So it either looks ridiculously easy or it looks near impossible. And I, I sway towards the, this is easy to doing the math and thinking there's just no way. Like this is not a possibility 
to actually do this in under 24 hours. So yeah, I don't know where I was going with that, except to say that, again, it was just another puzzle. So I started with my pacing chart. I literally put a spreadsheet together. I had 100 rows of each mile. How would I make this work so that I get to the end of this in 24 hours? And I just started playing with that. And then once I finished some of my earlier races, which was still hilly, and I knew I needed to start running on the flat, I just started practicing different paces and seeing how I felt at the end of it. What did I need to do to slow? It ended up being, what did I need to do to slow myself down so that I could sustain a pace through 24 hours? Because my natural running pace is probably, I don't know, if I'm just really taking it easy, between nine and a half and 10 minutes, I guess. But that's when I'm running 20 miles, right? That's not when I'm running 100 miles. And I knew that wasn't sustainable. And that one I did that was little loops, I did... 50 miles in 10 hours and I knew that I couldn't go faster than that like if I was going to do anything and even that was a little risky that needed to be my 50 mile pace so then I had to work out the back end of the race um, based on that yeah I find it fascinating that you went mile by mile versus chunking them. it ended up being it ended up being chunks okay but still <laughs> even though I chunked it I still have my hundred rows <laughs> I was like, because, you know, this is what I'm like. I'm kind of like, I need to make sure in the minute detail that this will still work out. Right. And how many times um, and so are you going to hit aid stations in that? So it had a lot of aid stations. So because of that, my strategy was, like, trail races, when they're out on single track, take a lot longer to cover a mile. So instead of thinking about it in terms of the miles, I thought about it in terms of time. So I looked at where all the aid stations were, and they were pretty much about four miles, four and a half miles apart, which for me was only an hour, and that is too many stops. So I broke it down into where I thought I would be every two hours and where the nearest aid station was, and those were the points where I planned on either meeting Lloyd, who was there crewing for me, or just filling up my water bottles you know, every couple of hours. So at any point, I had enough fluid to last me for two hours. Got it. And the race was in Ohio. Yeah, it was in Akron, Ohio. At Canal Corridor, is that what is that right? Yeah, the Canal Corridor 100 miler. And it runs, it starts in the middle of the race at a brewery, like all good trail races do. Um, and then it went, I think, south. It was, it was a really nice orderly distance. So it went south for 25 miles. There was literally a sign with a turnaround. It went back to the brewery. Then it went north for 25 miles. A nice little sign saying, turn here, back to the brewery. So it was really, I thought of it as four marathons, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, having done just one marathon, I can't imagine three more in a row. Um, so it gets to race day. And do you have a ton of stuff with you or, or do you feel like you have everything kind of down to a science at this point of like what to bring? Cause the weather, I'm, I mean, the weather doesn't change that much in a, in a forecast in 24 hours, typically. No, no, I pretty much relied on the forecast, but the thing that did change is that weekend was just projected to be really cold compared to anything we had had. We had had one chilly weekend, I think, 
two weekends before where it got into the low 40s. But this was projected to be around freezing without the wind chill. So I haven't run in that kind of cold weather. I don't even know how long. So I did kind of have to pull some stuff out. And I haven't run a, a night race in oh, two years. So I'm way behind the times on headlamps. And I didn't even know what I had anymore. And I was kind of pulling out all this old gear and, you know, trying to figure that out. So I probably wasn't as dialed in as I usually would be. But, you know, I didn't take a lot with me. My theory is I'd rather make the decisions at home than have 50 choices to make at 2 a.m. in the morning when I'm exhausted. So any decision I make in the cold, hard light of day is probably going to be a better decision, even if something changed a bit on race day than the one I'm going to make when I'm exhausted. So I'm really careful not to take four different kinds of jackets and three different pairs of gloves and five hats. You know, I just pick one um, and make sure I, I just made sure I had enough layers. And as it turned out, it was so cold. I wore every single layer I took. <laughs> with me and you know the race ended up with a really what I think is a pretty high DNF rate I think only about 60% of the people that started I think about 175 people started it and 115 finished it so only 60% of the people actually finished the race which I think that's kind of what Leadville was the first year I did that so you know I thought that was pretty high I was um I mean, that's surprised, right? Because 100 miles is hard no matter what you do. Uh, uh-huh. But for a flatter race, I thought there might have been a higher finisher rate kind of given that. Yeah, um, and it had a pretty generous cutoff. You know, I, I was surprised. And again, I don't know what all the circumstances were for those people. Yeah. But I'm going to guess just from what I saw at the beginning and the way that I passed people just very quickly People did just go out too fast, and then the cold definitely got to a lot of people. A lot of people dropped in the last quarter um, because, I mean, I'm not kidding. There were snow flurries. It was cold. Yeah. Yeah. And at that point, people were moving really slowly, you know, and it was damp. You're by a canal. It was beautiful, clear sky, but because of that, you know, really, really cold. So I'm guessing it was those two things. It was also a race that sold itself as very encouraging and welcoming to people new to the sport. So it could yeah. also just be, you know, there were just a lot of new people and they're just figuring it out. You know, it's their yeah. first one. So, yeah. That's what I was thinking too, is that it was a lot of first timers. I was surprised. I think I saw at least three or four groupings of same last name. So either husband, wife, sister, brother, brothers, you know, maybe dad yeah. and son or mother and daughter, whatever, any combination thereof. But I was, I was surprised at how many of those I saw. So my guess is too, if one dropped, the other dropped on, Probably. on, on some of those mm-hmm. potentially too. I didn't peruse everything, but um, I will say I'm a little jealous. I would much rather have had that cold of weather personally. That's just, I'm a cold <laughs> weather guy, cold weather runner. So um, I heard you. I heard your report with um, with Dave. So yeah, yeah it yeah. sounds like you did. The day was really nice. I mean, it was one of those days where it was beautiful blue sky. It did warm up if you were in the sun, but it never got warm in the shade. Yeah. Um, it was pretty chilly. If people weren't prepared, I'm kind of not sure why, because it it had been forecast. It wasn't like you know there was something that happened that was out of the ordinary. And the other thing I did have dialed in even though it didn't actually work out to plan I had my list of basic nutrition 
Lloyd had his list of extra nutrition, <laughs> which all sounded good at home, but actually I really didn't end up using on the day. So I had, I just had tailwind in my bottle. I had a plan to drink a bottle of that every hour, which is already a couple of hundred calories. I was going to try and eat another couple of hundred an hour, which we can talk about more if you want, but that didn't quite go to plan. Um, and that was pretty much it. So I didn't have a lot of stuff to it. And I took some extra shoes. I'm glad I did. I took, I had two pairs of hokers. Um, I have never really had a huge issue with blisters, but in really longer races, something usually happens around my little toe. And I had been getting a few weird blisters on my heels. I'm not sure why. So I thought changing shoes might help. And as it turned out, it, it did. Um, yeah, so I had that. I had like a blister kit with me. I had actually wrapped my toes in this tape that I have, which I've never done before, and I definitely would do that again. Um, so I did a few things like that, but I didn't take a lot with me, and I didn't want to have to make a lot of decisions um, on the go. When you say you ate a, or plan, or at least planned to eat a couple of hundred more, was it gels, real food combination of like what were you? Yeah, I wanted it to be real food. Um, and I had practiced this a little bit on my training runs. So I had like peanut butter sandwiches. I had, I kind of felt like my stomach felt better. I used to just run on tailwind and it worked perfectly for quite a while. And then I just, for whatever reason, couldn't stomach tailwind anymore or sweet drinks. And we talked about this a bit during training, right? Where we were trying different stuff because I just didn't think I could stomach tailwind for a hundred mile race. Um, I ended up buying a different flavor of it that I had never tried before. And I ended up literally drinking that through the whole 23 hours. Um, so I felt like I had gone back to the way I used to be able to do this and I could just rely on that. Um, and I just ended up really early in the race. Just Lloyd would give me this food that we talked about and I would open the packet and just feel nauseous. Like I just couldn't put it in my mouth. And it worried me because I didn't know whether tailwind would be enough. I had had this other plan. This is where I talk about holding the plan loosely because it can mess with your head really quickly if you let it, you know? So I just tried to kind of think my way through that a little bit. I'm like, well, let's just see what happens in the next hour. You know, just keep drinking the tailwind. You're getting a steady stream of 200 calories. I had a run-walk strategy to keep my pace down. So I really didn't feel like I was exerting myself that much cardiovascularly. Um, so it wasn't like a high energy feeling run. So I just kind of went with it and it, it was fine. I had a few bites of other things, a bit of fruit here and there, but mostly it was just those 200 calories of tailwind an hour and that was it. How, so it was right away that it was not appealing? Yeah, it was pretty early on. I would say, so my, my pacing plan ended up being for three hours, I would run between 10 and a half and 11 minute miles. And then for four hours, I would run between 11 and a half and 12 minutes. This is where I say I'm pretty exact. <laughs> for five hours, I would run between 12 and a half and 13. And then up until the last six miles or so, I would hold a 15-minute pace. And I had a run-walk breakdown that I knew got me to that. So... I don't know how much detail you want. I have a ton of it. So for the first three hours, I literally was running for a minute and a half and walking for a minute 15. That's how much I had to walk to keep my pace at 10 and a half. Then I flipped that for 11 and a half. 
and I had I wore two watches, which again I've never done because I think that's really geeky, but it worked really well. So I had my chorus watch that I was using with GPS, and then I had my watch. I had set up the run um, category to give me that 130, 115. I had trail run that gave me my next breakdown, which was less running, more walking. And then I had treadmill running, which gave me the final one for the last 12 hours. So, and I stuck to that like clockwork and I made myself stick to it. And something you said actually also happened in my race. I, I realized probably somewhere around 75 miles or so that if I didn't keep it up if I missed some of those runs and I just started walking I would not be able to run so that hit me pretty clearly I thought I just have to if I want to do this I have to keep to the schedule yeah 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 well I mean that's amazing that you were able to stick to it the nutrition was a little bit off from what you had hoped but it Obviously, it worked. The weather isn't exactly what you know you would prefer, but you had enough layers. Kind of, you were prepared. A little bit of blistering, you were prepared for that. Did anything? Did anything go just completely off the rails? I think the part that I, I thought could happen, and I hoped wouldn't. The thing I've really battled since I came back with my training this year. In all the races I've done, my legs have gotten really sore and really heavy really early. And I mean really early. The longest race I did was a 50-miler, and I was feeling it in my legs around mile 15. And then I was just kind of grinding it through to the end. And I hoped, because I had done all this flat training and it hadn't really happened too much in training, I hoped I would get a bit more mileage before my legs really started to kind of mess with my brain but it it was right around it was a turnaround point around 25 miles where I saw Lloyd and I got to that point and I was not in a good place my legs were just so sore and my hip flexor joints were just so tight I was honestly starting to think I don't know if I can walk as much as I need to because it was the walking that was causing you know more discomfort than the running And I was just really starting to think, I just, I don't know if I can walk that much. And if I can't walk that much, I definitely can't run that much. And it all just kind of starts spinning in your head, right? So I saw Lloyd there. He knows better than to delve too much into how I'm feeling. So he did his quick, how are you? And I'm like, yeah, not great. He's like, oh, well, here are your water bottles. I'll see you at the next stop. (laughs) (laughs) So I just left there and I just... I just had to consciously think, just stop. Don't project ahead. It can't. It might not get worse than this. It might stay the same as this. A bit like you talked about with your knee and your ankle. You know, it's like I knew it was going to be uncomfortable at some point. Does it really matter whether it's now or in 20 miles time? You know, just keep going. Just keep focusing on the beeping watch and just the running and the walking. And then the oddest thing was, this has never happened to me before. I was probably at around mile 40 my legs actually felt better. Like that has never happened. And I think it probably is the consistent run walking. Like I got over that soreness. Mm -hmm. My legs were getting a break from each one of those two activities. And I think it just, I I don't know. It's never happened to me. And I felt pretty good. My legs felt good from about mile 38 
to probably around mile 75 or 80, which has never happened. Like I've never been able to run that easily, you know, that late in a race. Beautiful. And then they just, as you'd expect your legs to feel when you've been out there for 80 miles, you know, they were sore, but it didn't stop me doing what I was doing. Uh, yeah. So it, it, it was, it was hard. It's hard feeling like that at mile 25, knowing you've got 75 to go. Um, but again, it just shows that if you just let it be, it could have gone either way. It could have gotten worse. I don't know. Right. Um, but either way, thinking about it and just stewing on it wasn't going to get me anywhere. But like you with your knee and your ankle, right? You're either going to run the race or you're not going to run the race. And you just have to figure that out. Yeah. Did you end up near specific people for any periods of time or were you? Yeah. You know, that or? was actually, that was kind of cool because it's a small race and anytime I've done even 50 mile races, even that 50 K I did recently, I ran the whole second half of that and didn't see another person. So I absolutely expected to be by myself for hours and it was not like that at all. I would say for most of it, I was kind of bunny hopping with people because I was doing the annoying run walk and they weren't. So you would just keep seeing these people over and over. And then there was the whole out and back nature of it where you would see people coming in the other direction, um, which is, this sounds really mean, but I mean, it's hard when you're the one going out and people are coming back, but it's actually pretty motivating when you're the one coming back and people are still going out. So it gives you an appreciation of how lucky you are to be at the spot you're in, you know, regardless of how you're feeling, while these other people are still going back where you've just been. So yeah, it was, there were a lot more people around than I expected. It was nice. really kind of nice. That's yeah. very cool. So your legs yeah. feel pretty good until 75, 80 where where's your head at that point so you got let's say 20 miles to go where's your head at that point I was pretty much still in the moment but I definitely had the sense of I put in all this work at that point you're just exhausted I was freezing cold I couldn't feel my face my hands I just kept them in my pockets as much as I could like it was really cold and I just had the sense of that goal of 24 hours, that's where I made that choice. It was around mile 80. I could have just let that slip away at that point. And in all honesty, I've done that in many races. I've pretty much settled in and just given up on the big goal and just kind of let it slip away, you know, and just thought, okay, you know, I did the best I could. Everything's sore. I'm going to stop. And I remember getting to that point and just thinking, all of that effort and keeping to that pace for what at that point was like 15 hours would be for nothing. I, I could have easily lost a couple of hours between mile 80 and mile 90. Like it's so easy to do in these races. It sounds like a lot, but you lose a few minutes per mile over 20 miles. You know, you've lost a lot of time really fast and it's happened to me before. So at that point, it was just that I'm not going to let all of that go to waste. I'm just going to keep doing this. And I kept looking at every time my watch beeped on the hour, if I was a little over 15 minutes, I ran for more seconds in the next mile to get that same amount under 15 minutes. That's how regimented I was. Because I knew if I let it just slowly slip, I would just give up on it. And I would think I'm fine with 24 and a half or I'm fine with 25. Right. Yeah. Was there ever a moment like as, as you're, kind of doing that self-talk where you're like, you know what, if I don't get that sub 24 this time, I ain't doing this again. 
Like I, it, it was there ever a point like where you thought that goal would just go away? Hmm, that's a good question. I probably told more people about this goal than I've ever told before. So what was running through my mind more was I just kind of got, I tried to make myself almost angry and think, you know what? If you don't just stick with this, you're going to have to go back and give all those people some ridiculous reason why you didn't do this. Or you can finish the race and go back and tell them all you did. And that honestly is what I kept thinking. I don't know what I would have done if I had missed the 24-hour goal. I think if I'm really honest, I probably knew I would just try again, that I would learn something from this that I would take into another race. So I would have been really disappointed if I hadn't have done it, but I think I would have learned some things that I would take into another one. I think I would have tried again. Nice. Yeah. yeah I, I think it's, I mean, it's interesting that this sport is so much about self-motivation and to have that external motivation, like talking to people, like for me, you know, telling, you know, a, a small audience here, it does make a difference. And for me, it was more like, I get, you know, kind of like I explained, you know, when I was recapping with Dave, right? Like I didn't want that bad luck to be the excuse, right? Yeah. Like if I can, if I can hobble around, like, let's do it, right? Like there's, and, and when you're ever, you're on one of these courses, there's always somebody that's got it way worse than you. And in a marathon like Chicago, it's visible. You know, there are people, you know, with double prosthetics and prosthetic legs and people on scooters because they've got MS and, um, you know, wheelchair races and, and other, mm-hmm. other things. So there are so many factors that go into it. Um, and it's, it's fascinating to hear somebody who has experience like you say, no, I just would have tried to, I think I would have tried again. Cause I, I can tell you a, a lot of people would, maybe not all, but I would say the majority would be the opposite. Like, whew. yeah, I say that I'm not a very confident person. I guess I'm a little bit of a mixture in this sense because there is a part of me that always has this idea that if I see people doing something, why not me? Like, why couldn't I figure that out? Not why couldn't I just go do it at the drop of a hat? But if I put the work in and I put the effort in and I figure it out, why couldn't I do it? Yeah. You know, a lot of people do this. Yeah. I, I think that's incredibly motivating for me, right? Because as we age, that that's the factor that becomes like, you can't, you're never going to outrace time, right? At some point time catches up. Right. And so that's where I start going, okay, I don't know about time goals as I age, right? Like I'm, I'm kind of trying to find that motivation again. Right. And to hear you say, look, I think I would have tried again. I I mean, that helps me a lot personally. Because I think that thinking around, I'm getting older, that almost presupposes the fact that you already reached your peak some point in the past. And if that wasn't your peak training or your peak effort in the past, and you put that peak effort in 10 years later, you could well outstrip what you did 10 years ago. Yeah, I think that especially is true with these longer races in the ultra world, because so much of it is mental. 
I mean, a marathon yeah. is mental. A 50K, even though it is less than five miles longer, just under five, you know, about five miles longer, it is infinitely more mental to me yes. than a marathon is. So yeah. I think that that's where, and as, as, I, as I age, that I could tell you 100% that um, that's a shout out to you, Dushkin, with the 100%. Uh, I'm way tougher. Yeah. And, and actually, Mental. it's an interesting point, too, because this is also I had sort of forgotten about this way I got into ultra running because I knew that there was a limit to how fast I was ever going to run a marathon. I'm not competitive at a marathon distance. I got into ultras and I'm placing like I'm the second woman to finish things. I'm finishing in the top 10 overall of stuff. And that was like, I mean, I've always been somewhat competitive, but never able to compete. And here I am now competitive and I was able to compete is like this is incredible yeah you know who ever would have thought because so much of it is about the effort you put in how willing you are to push through and how much you can plan and map out these things you know over hours and hours and hours so yeah yeah so speaking of that we're we're gonna get you to the finish line now so yeah was there a point past 80 where there was like, what happened from 80 then to, to that amazing 23 hour finish? Yeah. So the race had pretty um, well spaced out eight stations, but it had this big block in that second half where you couldn't meet with crew. Mm. Um, so there was a, a, like a 12 mile, I think it was about a 12 mile gap. So about 10 miles from the end, you had this 12-mile gap where you just had to kind of run on your own, and that was like right around this bit we're talking about. So that's where I kind of had this sense of I have to hold my pace until I see Lloyd again. I think it was at mile 89. And I just thought to myself, if I can hold my pace and get to mile 89, that's when I had I knew I had two hours where I could drop the pace to like three miles an hour, and I had an extra hour. So when I got to 89, I had three hours. But even at that point, Pete, I still didn't let go and think, okay, I've got this now. And interestingly, when I talked to Lloyd afterwards, neither did he. So we've both seen this happen too many times and there's just still so much that can happen, you know, even at that point. People dropped at mile 89, you know. So so I get to mile 89 and I, I've got three hours and I've only got to go, what, 11 miles but still, you start to do the math in your head and you, you realize how tired you are. And by now, you've got blisters on your feet. And it's, what, 3 a.m. in the morning and it's frigidly cold. And you're like, what if I keep getting colder? And like all these things that still just go through your head. You're like, I, I don't know if this is going to happen or not. So I managed to, so, so there was that point at mile 89. And then oh, I have to try and remember, there might have been a couple of aid stations in between. I think it was four miles, three miles, and three miles. Would that be 11? Yeah. yeah. There was four miles to the next aid station, then three miles, then three miles. So at that point, I just stuck with mile by mile, and I thought if I can just get from mile 89 to the next four-mile point, and at this point my Garmin was already running a mile and a half over. This was a certified course, so I knew it was only 100 miles, but my watch was saying, you know, I was like two miles ahead of that. 
So I'm trying to kind of, I'm tired at this point and I'm trying to partly compute it and partly not and just trust that I'd stuck to my pacing and it was all okay. And if I just kept sticking to the pace, I would be fine. So I tried to keep that 15 minute mile mark till I got to the next aid station, which is what does that make it? 93. And then I kind of eased off a bit because at that point I was getting really worried about nutrition. So I started, I just hadn't eaten anywhere near what I thought and I didn't want to risk that slow kind of ultra crawl, you know, into the finish where again, you can easily lose an hour, you know, in the blink of an eye. Like again, it's happened to me and I've seen it happen to people. So even at that point, I'm at mile 93 and I've got, I can't even do the math now. I had a lot of time to finish those last you know, six miles, but I still didn't do the math. I might just stick to the mile per hour plan. And it wasn't until I got to that that point where I had only three miles to go and I had just under two hours. Um, this math's not working out, but I know when I got to that point, I had just under two hours. And that's when I let myself think, okay, the wheels would really have to fall off at this point for yeah. me not to get under 24 hours. Um, and even Lloyd, afterwards when we talked, he's like, yeah, that was the point where he thought, okay, you know, this is – he was getting excited at about the 75-mile turnaround. I could see it on his face that he was like, you know, you're really moving. And he had my projected pace because he knew when I had planned on meeting him. And he's like, you're like way ahead. You're an hour ahead. I'm like, just don't. Don't tell me. It's fine. I'm only ahead because we've been quick, you know, at changing things over and I haven't wasted time. I'm just going to keep going. And, yeah, when we got to that point, he was like, you realize you're going to finish this in, like, 23 hours? I'm like, no, don't, no. <laughs> I've got two hours and three miles to go. We'll just keep moving. And those three miles, I did pretty much walk all of them. Like, it got pretty hilly at that point. And I say hills in quotes because compared to, you know, single track hills, they weren't. But it had some decent climbing. This thing had 1,900 feet of climbing along the whole thing. So it wasn't 100% flat. And there was a pretty big climb back into the start finish. And at that point, climbing up anything, when you've been running on the flat for that long, it was like agony to go up anything. So it got a little bit slow because of that, and I really didn't want to use energy I didn't have. So in honesty, could I have done those three miles a little faster? Probably. I might have got to the finish five minutes earlier than I did. I don't really know. But I wasn't willing to risk finishing around 23 hours to finish in 22.50, you know, so... Um, and then Lloyd actually came from the finish and walked down a bit. I don't know how far I did the last bit with him. And, yeah, I got in a 23 hours, and I think it was 50 seconds. I forgot to turn my watch off, so Strava looks a little bit longer, but like just a, a tad over 23 hours. It's just amazing. Yeah. Congratulations and, and, you know, on just sticking yeah. to it. Like you had a plan. You, you stuck to what you could. You adapted where you had to. I yeah. mean, that's really excellent. You, know you know how you talked about at the beginning of Chicago, you had a run-walk strategy, but you thought you would run the first mile to get out of the crowds? This is how easy, how difficult it is to stick to a plan, right? Like I'm towing the start line. I've got my plan. I'm clear that it will work. I'm at the start line and I'm waiting and I'm thinking, it's 175 people. Maybe I'll just run the first mile, you know, and get past some people, 
So I start doing that. I look at my watch. I'm running like an eight minute, 30 mile. I get to about a third. I'm like, what the F are you doing? Like, stop. And in a matter of three minutes, you just throw in your whole plan out the window. It's not easy to slow yourself down. It is really, really hard. It was much harder than I thought it would be. And it was hard for the first 25 miles to stick with that and not just run. Yeah, when you're feeling so good because it's, yeah. you know, you're coming off peak training. And right? this is someone who knows better, who's made that mistake before and knew that this was what I needed to do. And it's still hard. Yeah. Like it, our minds are just ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> there is one other part of this too. I don't know if you looked at the overall results, but when I was going out on my first 25 I don't know how far I'd gone, and this young 29-year-old bolts past me in the other direction. He ended up winning the race. He ran the whole thing in under 13 hours. Oh, my gosh. Incredible. Like, it, it, it's unbelievable. When you get to see people at the front of the pack run like that, it, it's craziness. So he finished 10 hours ahead of me. <laughs> So, you know, you got to be careful when you're comparing because there's always someone doing something bigger and better than you're doing. Right. <laughs> oh, man. Well, that's awesome. I have one last question to kind of wrap it up. And if people are out there listening and thinking about getting into these longer distances into ultras, besides telling them to get a really good therapist and reconsider... What advice do you would you would you give to them? I would say hmm I think if you're really thinking about it in your gut you really want to do it. So I think you should avoid second guessing or talking yourself out of it. Yeah, and I think you should be true to yourself and finding the race you really want to do. So when I first wanted to do a 100-mile race, I wanted to do Leadville. Now, that is a ridiculous first 100-mile race, and I missed the cutoff halfway through, but I want that's what I wanted to do, and that's what motivated me to train. So don't dummy down the goal. You know, and we do that in our own head. That's not somebody else doing that for us. We do that really before we toe the line on anything. So if you're thinking about it, you know in your gut what it is you want to do. You've probably even got a race in your mind of what you want. So put that on the calendar and then work backwards realistically to put in the work to set yourself up for success, whatever success looks like to you. You know, and I'm not sure if you're doing your first race and it's a long one like a 100-mile race, the best advice my coach gave me, and he also gave me this because it was Leadville, and I think even though he didn't talk me out of it, he knew that there was, you know, a huge challenge. Don't even think about time. You know, just do the work, go in there, do the best you can on the day, and trust me, the time at the end will not be the thing you remember. You know, even when I timed out halfway through Leadville, I should have been devastated, and I was definitely disappointed but I had nothing else. Like that was the best I could do on the day. You know, at that altitude, I just wasn't fit enough to run any harder. So was I disappointed? Yes. Was I disappointed at myself? No. You know, and I think that's how everyone feels. Whether you DNF or you finish, you feel like 
you did the best you could on the day. So there's no downside, you know, to towing the line and doing the race you want to do. It might feel like there's a big risk, and there is, but I don't think you'll feel like that at the end of it. Yeah. Yeah, I I like that advice. I mean, I think that's a a good one. And a corollary to that, I'm interested in a lot of things. Like, I find a lot of things fascinating. But I've also gotten to the point now where I realize the power of no. Like, like so like Rob, as an example, right? mentioned a triathlon to me. I have zero interest in triathlon. Zero. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I And when I was younger, I would have beat around the bush. I might have even caved to do something small or try. Or, But now I'm like, no. And I think it's freeing for me because it allows me to then say, okay, what I'm thinking about is hiking the Grand Canyon again. So that's what I need to go do. And that's the kind of stuff I need to have on my radar because that's what's on my mind. I, I don't think about triathlon yes. until the Iron Man thing comes up in you know in Kona, and I watch the 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 replay on NBC, right? Um, so I think that those and you talk about you talk about the Grand Canyon all the time. Yeah, like that's what you need to do. It, yeah, absolutely. You know, that's it's, what you need to do. Yeah, and and that's definitely part of the plan. And I think that's what's going to be interesting about working with Holly Ann through some of these different type of goals while incorporating things like running, but more overall plans um, yeah. into this. Yeah. So, you know, no, it's, it's definitely on the radar and I'm trying to get logistically when I can, when I can do that. Cause there's small, smaller windows for yes. the Grand Canyon. Um, yes. Unless you're in unbelievable shape and it just, doesn't matter how hot it is, right? Yeah, and, and you know, you and Rob know me well enough. I mean, I, I don't think I'm a negative person. Maybe sometimes I'm over-realistic about things, but I think anything is possible for anybody given the right amount of time, the right amount of effort, and the right amount of training. I don't, I don't believe that anywhere near the majority of people can just come up with an idea and just go do it with no work. I, right. I just I don't buy it. I don't see it. I've seen enough people in ultras now to know that that's very rare. It happens, but it's very rare. You know, and I I just think you have to have your goal, stick with it, have it there as the thing you're really trying to achieve and work backwards. And and that goal might be three years away. It might be six months away. I mean, I don't know. You know, and I don't, I also don't necessarily agree with this idea of breaking a goal into smaller goals and achieving those. Like that doesn't really work very well for me. (laughs) It always is my focus on the big goal. And I do little things leading up to it, but I don't really care about them. They're all just for the big goal at the end. Yeah. Well, and you know, I talked to Lloyd about this too, because again, people are asking me what's next. And I said to Lloyd, I think whatever's next. It has to be about more than just not wanting to let go of the sport. You know, it can't just be this identity of, oh, I run 100-mile races, so I have to keep running 100-mile races. You know, I don't know. It's going to have to be something else that makes me want to put that amount of effort into training again, and I don't know what that is right now. It could be the TJM last dot standing race, but I'm not 100% sure yet. There we go. (laughs) Look at that. Yeah. It could be. It might be. I don't know. Oh yeah, that's uh, that's a fun one for sure. So, well, this has been awesome. I really appreciate it and appreciate all the time. And I love all this the mental aspect talk that we got to do and how preparation went into things. So this was great. So I'm going to wrap it up. 
Before we go, do you want to give people an update on how you're feeling and how your knee is and your ankle and stuff? I'm sure people are interested to know. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll briefly do that. Um, you know, so the the ankle was definitely a slight sprain. And look, if if we don't, as runners, if we don't run on sprained ankles, we would rarely run. I mean, it, we sprain ankles. It, it just happens. Mm-hmm. As long as it's not a, a severe one, and this one wasn't, it was very slight. Um and actually, it's almost like down, almost towards the foot. So it's, you know, just niggling, but nothing that's inhibiting movement. The knee is fine when I walk. I haven't run yet. We'll find out what happens. It's more, though, like if I brush into something or I hit something at the wrong angle, because it's definitely a bone bruise. Like it's because it's only it's very concentrated. It doesn't hurt when there's minor impact. Um, it's just more of like something hitting right at the spot as I just did it to myself touching, you know, like where it hurts. <laughs> super smart. Um, but yeah, I mean, and physically like my legs are fine. I feel fine mentally. I'm fine. Like I could say that having the race that I did say, say, say this happened four years ago, I would have been angry, devastated, apologetic, you know, I mean, I was apologetic to my family because standing out there that long, even on a nice day, is like, it's a long time, right? Like it's a long time to be out there when somebody's doing a six hour, 15 minute um, marathon. So from that aspect, yeah, but I, I'm not apologetic in my head at all about how long it took. I will say that I am not, I'm probably not done with the marathon. I don't have Mm. any plans today. I don't know when I'll come back to it. I want to tackle other things and I'm working through that and we'll talk about it more in upcoming episodes, but I haven't had a good marathon in the first two that I've attempted. And that doesn't feel great. That part doesn't feel great because I know I don't care about the time. Like if I would have been six hours, 15 minutes, but it was like, I felt amazing. It was a great race. I'd have been fine, right? I may have been done with it. I may not have been. It's not about the time. It's about the process and then the day. And when I've gotten to the day, it just didn't happen the way I wanted to, right? Um, The second time was just because of the strange circumstance on a shakeout run. The time... You know, the first time it was great that I got to be with Rob and he, you know, really helped me move on that course, but my back was killing me and I took yeah. a wrong step. And again, like, so twice now in marathons, it's one step that's made a difference in feeling like I had a good race. So, um, I don't know if I'll ever have a time goal again, but I will have like a, have a good race goal at some point. I don't know. Maybe it's interesting. It's that unfinished business thing that actually brought me back to this 100-mile race because I didn't feel like I had run my best 100-mile race. Yeah. You know, Leadville, I timed out. The other one I did, the weather was atrocious. I went off course. Like, there was just all this stuff. And I left it feeling like you. It wasn't a bad day. I wasn't apologetic. I just had this feeling that I had a better one in me. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, it's a huge driving force, right? I mean, and, mm-hmm. and I'd say, I can say the same thing about the Grand Canyon. Like I made it across eventually the first time I tried, it was awful. And I put my family in a worried state that just didn't need to happen. 
And I, and I also learned to your point, like about, Hey, would I have tried the 24 again? Like I learned so much in the Grand Canyon. I know exactly what the problems are and any day could be different. Right. I mean, in the Grand Canyon, you could go from it snowing at the top to, to 120 degrees at the bottom and a thunderstorm. It was sleet on the way up. Like you don't know. No, there's never really a guarantee at all. You know, it's a little bit like Leadville too, though, because people say to me, well, it's the altitude. The problem at Leadville is the altitude. I'm like, no, the problem at Leadville is you have to be even fitter to deal with the altitude, right? So whatever hurdles might be thrown at you in the day, if you've controlled all the things you can, you've got that little bit of bandwidth to deal with the few things that are thrown at you unexpectedly. Right. You know, and that's what you gain, I think, from that experience. Now you deal with those things. Right. You know, so now you can deal with whatever else comes up on the day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, that's I appreciate awesome. It. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Are you still planning on doing some training before Rob's race? Like, oh, are you going to rest your ankle some more? Or what, what are your plans for the next couple of weeks? I don't think I need to rest it. I mean, I'll find out tomorrow when I go for my run. Um, that'll tell me, I think, a lot of what I need to know. Uh, but overall, as long as that feels good, I'm going to start to get back into a rhythm. I'll I'll talk with uh, Coach Holly Ann and, and see what her suggestions are. And then it's about getting some climbs in, right, which is not an easy yeah. thing in us uh, for us Flatlanders. Um, but there is a, a, a place called Starved Rock. It's a state park that you can get good elevation up and down into these canyons. It's gorgeous. It's just a beautiful place. Uh, so I plan to do that. And then there are the Swallow Cliff stairs that I can go to and just go up and down and up and down. I'm going to get a lot of hiking. I'm going to wear the vest no matter what, right? Like have those things. The one thing that's different is I can't really get any, um, like nighttime elevation stuff that yeah. just doesn't exist here. Everything here closes at dusk. Uh, yeah. You can't be out in the dark. So, I mean, I guess you can, but I, I'm not a lawbreaker. So I just follow the rules. So that'll be something that, I mean, frankly, I, will be different for me, you know, yeah. come that day uh, with Rob. But I, I don't foresee it being too too big of an issue but i will go out again if you deal with all the other things so that's the only unknown yeah. thing yeah. right then you can deal with that yeah. yeah yeah and i feel like right now that my fitness is at a really good spot for something like this right like it yes. i have i could go for a very long time at a at a steady pace right so yes. i should be great from that aspect um and in the end whatever Rob needs, that's, I'm out there to help. So I'm out there to have some fun experience, something different, uh, and help a friend. And that's, uh, well, we definitely need to do some more talking about that beforehand, whether we do it, you know, in a podcast with Rob or whether we just do it, you know, offline. Um, it would be interesting just to talk and get a little bit more of an idea from Rob about what he's expecting. Yeah. You know, from crewing and pacing, because I don't really know what he has in his mind. I'm kind of assuming, but I really don't know. No, for sure. Um, I mean, I, I I have that. It's interesting, right? Because we get done with our races and I told Rob, okay, I'm getting ready to switch gears. Give me a few days. And, and now that's where it's at. Like, I want to really go back, watch some of the videos of this race, listen to the podcast yeah. about this race, look at the terrain more. 
yeah. and that's going to be a fun thing to dive into. And then now that, you know, once I kind of have a better lay of the land than the three of us talking and, and getting a plan together, it's going to be, I don't, it's interesting and fun to me because it's something, something I don't know. Yeah. So. Yeah, Lloyd and I spent, um, when we went up to this race on Friday, we drove to all the places he was planning on meeting me because he wanted to know where they were. He wanted to know where he would be parking the car. He knew it would be dark a lot of the time. So, you know, we did all of that on Friday. So at least he had an idea of those things. And I know that you plan to do that um, in West Virginia as well. So. Yeah, yeah. I'll get there Thursday or I'll get there Wednesday, I think. Thursday? No, Thursday. And I plan to to take a, my time looking around between that, you know, mm-hmm. Thursday night and Friday before you guys get there. And I'm going to have definitely have some pins dropped on a map <laughs> as best I can. But- I hope so, because I'm a really, I'm a bad navigator. Like I turn around three times in Walmart and I'm lost. So yeah. it's like not a strength of mine. Yeah. <laughs> oh. All right. All well, right. This time I really will wrap it up. So um, yes. thanks again to, to you, Karen, for joining us. Um, oh, it's episode 164. I, had, I was like, I don't know what episode. I found it. <laughs> Thank you for listening to episode 164 of the Fat Man Chronicles. The music is You Got Me Wrong by Safar. If you haven't entered the contest for uh, the drawing to, to get a signed copy of ryan holiday's latest book please do so there is still time before i record again next week so um a couple more books to give away congrats to mary beth on being the first winner and i want to say other than that everyone get out there and be better today i was not hiding i was not Sure. And I was really